You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Uh, so today I'm going to talk about, uh, this afternoon I'm going to talk about two very common conditions, but we rarely talk about them um, in the context of uh, darkly pigmented skin types, uh, some of the differences in clinical presentation, uh, quality of life, uh, impact, and treatment outcomes, and that's what I want to highlight here today. Uh, first, some disclosures. I have worked with uh, the following companies, uh, either as a, a researcher or a consultant. Those are shown here. And I will be uh, mentioning some off-label uses of medication. So I'm going to begin with psoriasis, where you know we've all heard many, many psoriasis lectures. We have uh, read a lot about psoriasis in the literature. But when it comes to psoriasis in non-white racial ethnic populations, there really is a dearth of, uh, of information. We have limited information about how prevalent it is in non-white populations. We, in fact, uh, when... Uh, as recently as the 90s, uh, psoriasis was reported as rare uh, among uh, blacks, including African Americans and, and uh, uh, sub-Saharan uh, Africans. Uh, but uh, more recent studies, which I'll mention, have challenged this. Uh, there are also some nuances in the clinical presentation which can make the diagnosis a little bit more challenging in some scenarios when uh, uh, faced with darker skin patients. And uh, interestingly, there are some variations in quality of life impact, which we'll talk about. I'll also try and offer some practical information about any nuances to treatment, some sp specific clinical scenarios where we might have to take certain things into account that we see primarily in specific racial ethnic populations. So a lot of what I'm going to say today is, uh, is covered in great detail in this uh, review article I published a couple years ago. Uh, I recommend this reference uh, to uh, if anyone wants to learn more about what, what we do know about racial ethnic variations in epidemiology, genetics, clinical presentation, and nuances to treatment in psoriasis. Let's start with epidemiology. In fact, when I was a resident, uh, the, the literature that we had um, suggested that psoriasis was a rare disease in African Americans and other uh, non-white racial ethnic groups. The study that was often quoted was this uh, from 99, where the prevalence uh, in blacks was 0.22% versus 1.28% in whites back, back then, uh, based on the, the studies back then. However, uh, more recently, we've had additional studies that have uh, reported a higher prevalence that's more consistent with, with my clinical impression. I think under-reporting, under-diagnosis of psoriasis all contribute to these uh, reports in the literature of it being uncommon in uh, uh, blacks and others with skin of color. This uh, is a summary of some of the recent uh, epidemiologic studies uh, that look at racial ethnic differences in uh, psoriasis. And we can see, they're all over the map, uh, studies that uh, report 0.06% in African Americans as the prevalence, as low as 0.06, and as high as 1.9% uh, in African Americans. So the most, most recent of, of these studies is this one that was published in the, in the JAD, the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, cross-sectional study using National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. And uh, they found that the psoriasis, uh, prevalence of psoriasis was highest amongst Caucasians, as expected and as seen in, in numerous other reports, at 3.6%, followed by African Americans at 1.9%, 
and then Hispanics at 1.6% and others at 1.4%. So clearly this suggests that it's far from rare in non-white uh, patient populations. And again, underreporting, underdiagnosis, I think contributes to lower uh, uh, prevalence rates that are reported. When it comes to the clinical manifestations of psoriasis, there are certainly cases where psoriasis in a darker skin patient, such as in this Latina woman, looks very similar to psoriasis in, in, in any other uh, skin type with uh, uh, salmon pink or sometimes deep, deeply erythematous uh, uh, plaques with or without micaceous scale. Um, and so it can be relatively simple to make the diagnosis just visually However, there are certainly many other scenarios where trying to diagnose psoriasis, despite how common it is and despite how good we are at recognizing psoriasis, it can be a bit of a challenge sometimes, uh, particularly in, in very uh, darkly pigmented skin. In this gentleman, you don't really see uh, much erythema or any erythema at all, and it just looks uh, very gray, grayish and scaly in this appearance. His chief complaint, of course, is I have dry skin or I have ashy skin. But no, it's psoriasis. Uh, in the context, in the background of deeply uh, pigmented, melanin-rich uh, skin, the color of the psoriasis plaque may be deeply pigmented or have a purplish or violaceous hue, uh, as in this example. Sometimes it just doesn't look like psoriasis at all. Uh, this is biopsy-proven psoriasis, um, and in this patient, uh, her home skincare regimen played a role in what the clinical appearance of the psoriasis was. I couldn't figure out why she just would not respond to any treatment I gave her on her, on her legs, especially the, the left leg. It just would not respond. So after several visits, I finally sat down with her. I pulled the stool up and just said, so what's going on? What, 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 uh, tell me about your, your regimen. What do, you, what do you do at home for this? And then she goes on to admit that she would oil her, her, uh, her legs with a uh, with, uh, uh, petrolatum, and then take a blunt uh, kitchen knife, like a butter knife, and scrape off the, the scale every night, uh, thinking that, you know, it's dry, it's scaly, got to remove the scale. Of course, she's worsening the psoriasis through the Kebner phenomenon, and of course, contributing to that uh, deep hyperpigmentation, and that's a close-up of her left leg. And so finally, after we figured that out and giving some patient education about avoiding picking and scratching and, and scraping down with a, with a, with a blunt instrument, um, she finally responded. Also did some intralesionals right into the plaque, and, and that helped a lot too. We can see variants of psoriasis like this, a sort of ichthyosiform, um, very, very scaly, dry-appearing, uh, ichthyotic-like uh, plaques in this gentleman. It can uh, look similar to cutaneous T-cell lymphoma or mycosis fungoides. And the bottom line is we're, we're more likely, at least in my experience, we're more likely to do a biopsy to confirm the diagnosis of psoriasis in many of these more challenging scenarios, uh, whereas in the majority of cases when we see psoriasis in uh, lighter skin types, it's just a, a, a clinical diagnosis, often a diagnosis from the doorway. Um, there's very little literature on this, but a, a study that was uh, published a few years ago reported on the findings of a survey to 29 key opinion leader psoriasis experts that are dermatologists, and uh, they were asked about their opinions based on their experience, the on whether there are clinical 
uh, differences in psoriasis in African Americans. And uh, about two thirds of the uh, respondents uh, reported that yes, there are indeed clinical differences in African Americans, including dispigmentation, thicker plaques was their perception, and less erythema. I think the thicker plaques can be debated, and, you know, that's probably all over the map, but uh, the, prep, the existence of dispigmentation and less erythema, that's hard to argue. I think that's pretty, that's pretty much uh, accepted. So let's go through some of the clinical uh, variations, starting with pigment alteration. Just as in any other inflammatory skin condition, we see as a very common sequela and a disfiguring uh, sequela, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, or in some cases, hypopigmentation. And you can see in this example, in addition to his uh, scaly grayish plaques down here, he's got extensive hyperpigmented patches over here in areas that are resolved. More severe hyperpigmentation in areas where the psoriasis has resolved. This is hypopigmentation in combination with hyperpigmentation. You see this hypopigmented area around here in this gentleman with SIBO psoriasis. Interestingly, a study out of New York, the Rockefeller Institute and NYU, found a potential link between the cytokines that we know very well that are involved in the pathogenesis of psoriasis and their impact on pigment uh, production, specifically uh, melanocyte proliferation and melanocyte number and pigment signaling. So there were variable effects of interleukin-17 and TNF-alpha on melanocyte number and pigment signaling. And these effects were actually reversed when treating with blockers of these cytokines. So that's very interesting. The first time that anyone's established a direct link between specific mediators of psoriasis and pigment alteration. Then, as I alluded to earlier, the erythema of psoriasis can be uh, masked by the deep melanin pigment in the background. And so we might just see silvery or grayish scale uh, or, or what looks like hyperpigmentation, but is really erythema uh, in the background of uh, type 6 skin. Again, very grayish, barely see the erythema. So you don't generally use erythema in this context to, to, to assess the severity or psoriasis, and it's not that helpful sometimes for the diagnosis. Another example, no erythema here. And uh, seeing these plaques here, there's clearly a differential diagnosis, and it would be hard to make the diagnosis of psoriasis just by looking at it. Other things to consider here would be sarcoid. It almost looks, some of these plaques are so thick, you wonder, is there a dermal component? Could this be sarcoid? Uh, could it be uh, mycosis fungoides? A, a, a biopsy would be recommended here, and that's what was done and confirmed psoriasis. And in these scenarios where it's a challenge to, to, to figure out whether it really is psoriasis, looking for other clues. Of course, a biopsy is important, but lo looking for other clues. We look for places that we know uh, psoriasis has a predilection, like the scalp or the postauricular folds. Look for nail findings. Look at the extensor surfaces. Look at the intergluteal cleft. So search for those more obvious clues of psoriasis, and, and that can be helpful in terms of supporting the diagnosis. And in the absence of all that, biopsy to confirm. Another color feature, again, an example of this somewhat violaceous to gray hue in the background of type 6 skin. Another example, which is looking more purple here. 
And because of this purplish or violaceous hue, it can be difficult to distinguish this from another common papulosquamous disorder, like in planus. And again, this is an area where you can use other clues, like the sites of involvement, whereas lichen planus tends to involve, it very frequently involves the uh, volar part of the, uh, of the wrist and forearm. We tend to see psoriasis more on the extensor surface and, of course, the scalp and the nail findings, etc. So you want to look carefully all over for other clues. Another potential mimicker would be discoid lupus, especially when you're presented with scaly plaques involving the scalp uh, and, the, and the face and other sun-exposed areas. Uh, it would be very uh, unusual for psoriasis only to affect uh, sun-exposed areas of the face and have a, a very discoid-like appearance. So if you see this, you do want to suspect discoid lupus and not make the mistake of calling it psoriasis. You want to look in other areas to help uh, look for clues again, look for follicular plugging uh, in some of these plaques, look at the scalp, um, ask about photosensitivity. However, the variant of discoid lupus, which is uh, called the hypertrophic DLE, which can be far more scaly and have uh, thicker plaques, this can be really hard to distinguish from psoriasis, but the, the, the shape of these lesions being more discoid, the distribution not being typical of psoriasis, uh, that helps argue against psoriasis. But again, a biopsy is needed here to make the diagnosis. So that's clinical differences, but what about quality of life? It turns out there are a few studies that have demonstrated that the quality of life can actually differ uh, between different racial ethnic groups. In fact, a survey from the National Psoriasis Foundation with just under 5,000 respondents found that there was a greater psychosocial impact of psoriasis in African Americans than what was found in uh, Caucasians. Specifically, 72% of uh, the, those surveyed um, the, those who were African-American in the survey said that psoriasis interfered with their capacity to enjoy life compared to 54% of Caucasians. They also reported more severe disease uh, among African-Americans, with 23% of African-American respondents having had very severe psoriasis versus 8% of Caucasians in this patient survey. More objectively, in an actual um, physician uh, assessment, Study. This is a study I, I, uh, um, I, I led a few years ago in collaboration with Amgen. We looked retrospectively at a phase four community-based trial of a Tanercept or Enbrel in uh, the treatment of moderate to severe psoriasis. And uh, in this data set of over 2,500 patients with uh, about 14% being non-white, we found no ethnic or racial differences in safety or efficacy which is great, that's reassuring, that we can use this and get, expect the same results that we would see in other groups. But interestingly, we found uh, significant differences in quality of life impact, where Asians and Af African American patients had a worse quality of life impact, a greater quality of life impact of the psoriasis versus Caucasian. And this persisted even after controlling for severity of disease. So this might have something to do with the pigmentary sequelae, might have something to do with the cultural perceptions of the disease and, and its impact, uh, but uh, this is something that deserves more uh, research. So um, in addition to 
the normal, the usual out treatment outcomes that we expect when treating psoriasis, reducing the scaling, the erythema, the thickness of the plaque. Just as uh, I alluded to in my acne presentation, the treatment endpoint here often isn't the same in that the patient is not satisfied until both the actual psoriasis is resolved and also the pigmentary alteration. So this patient is at 12 weeks of adalimumab, Humira, doing great from an erythema scale in duration perspective. In a study, she might have even achieved a POSI 75, but she's covered with very severe disfiguring hyperpigmentation. She cannot wear clothing that exposes her legs, her lower legs. So functionally, she's still the same and still doesn't think that it's working. This is at six months, much improved, but still a lot of pigmentation. So the time point till the patient being satisfied might be a year later uh, with ongoing control of this, the underlying disease and adjunctive use of, of bleaching agents if needed. When it comes to therapies of psoriasis in diverse patient populations, we're limited because of the enrollment of the, of the uh, phase three trials uh, that we currently have. Across the board, all the, the recent phase three trials uh, in, involving uh, biologic therapies, for example, enroll patients, uh, have demographic breakdowns that hover around 90% for Caucasian and 10% for non-Caucasian. So we don't have a, a large body of uh, data for non-white patient populations. But thankfully, this is changing, and this is something that uh, I've been working on a lot with uh, with uh, various uh, companies, and uh, I collaborated on this study using a premolast, uh, the oral phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitor, or OTESLA, in moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. And in 16 weeks, uh, there were no differences in safety or efficacy in the non-white versus the white uh, patients. And doing studies of this kind is important because we can't assume that everyone's going to respond the same way. In fact, in other disease states, like hypertension, for example, the actual guidelines for treating hypertension in an African American are different than, than in, um, in, in the general population. So there may be, uh, there's a potential for racial ethnic variations in response to therapy uh, due to pharmacogenomic differences, perhaps. Um, but so it's important to look. If we don't look, we don't know. And thankfully, there were no, no differences found here. Um, when it comes to real-world practice, uh, I, I don't see any potential limitations to using any of the therapies that we have available uh, in terms of biologics and oral, oral therapies. Uh, and this is an example of, of a woman who's responded very well to ustekinumab or Stellara uh, after uh, uh, 12 weeks. And uh, I think it's key, just as I mentioned in, in my acne lecture, not to undertreat these patients because of the, the long-lasting pigment, pigmentary sequelae. If we treat the underlying inflammatory problem effectively, I, my impression is that we can reduce the time course to clearance for the, of the hyperpigmentation and certainly prevent the development of new hyperpigmented areas. This is the uh, same patient, her abdomen, with good clearance. So let's do a case that kind of illustrates one of the, a, a scenario that's nuanced uh, when treating a particular uh, patient population with skin of color, and this is African-American women. So this is a 52-year-old African-American woman who com comes into the office complaining of dry scalp. And when asked how long it's been going on, she says, for a while. 
And how many people, how many of you have had your patients say, it's been going on for a while, or it's been going on for a minute? Uh, how long is that? I'm not really sure, but often it, it can range anywhere from one to 12 months, who knows? Um, you do have to ask a follow-up question. Um, she reports associated pruritus, and she says that she's tried everything. And by everything, she means Moroccan oil, organic almond oil, and she even stopped eating gluten, because as we all know, gluten is pretty much the root of all evil, right? So this is what she looks like, and her scalp is covered with these scaly plaques. It extends out onto her hairline and her forehead and temples. Again, uh, here, her temple area extending out uh, onto, the, onto the face. Obviously very disfiguring, embarrassed to go out. Um, she actually uh, admits to spending uh, several hours a week just removing the scale, as many patients do, not knowing that this, through the Kevner phenomenon, can worsen uh, the psoriasis. That's her again. So how would you treat this patient? So this is an audience response question. Uh, you can pull out your, uh, uh, your little clickers there. How would you treat this patient? Would you use a medicated shampoo? Sorry, I forgot about the music. <laughs> medicated shampoo every day, a low-potency topical corticosteroid daily, or a calcipotriene cream twice daily, or something else? All right, so a third of the audience would do something completely different, and a third would use a low-potency topical corticosteroid daily. So I tried to trick you about that low-potency topical corticosteroid, um, and I uh, would favor the answer D, other, and we'll go through why. So key teaching point here with scalp psoriasis in an African-American or woman of African ancestry who has, uh, at least before treatment, has Afro-textured hair, you want to take into account what is her hair care, what are her hair care practices, what's her hair care regimen, just as Dr. Callender was mentioning in her talk. So you have to recognize that, in general, uh, the hair washing frequency in this population is less. It averages once per week to once every other week, depending on the style, especially someone with uh, locks, that might be once a month. Um, and in a condition like psoriasis, that, I, that can certainly contribute to the buildup of scale and thickness of the plaque and contribute to the severity. But we do have to just take into account the baseline rate of um, hair washing frequency. And when making adjustments to that, doing it in a, in a way that's compatible with that person's uh, hairstyle and um, hair type. In general, you can pretty much convince most uh, of these patients to wash once per week. So even if they're doing less frequently than once per week, you can, it's pretty much compatible to do once per week without causing a significant dryness or breakage of, uh, of their hair and uh, without dealing with the very time-consuming nature of the uh, post-hair washing routine. So the other thing about daily hair washing, if we were just, just to give across the board uh, everyday hair washing recommendations, uh, the trouble is that most of our prescription shampoos and hair washing in general done more frequently is often associated with increased hair dryness and breakage because at baseline, Afro-textured hair is, is drier, it's more brittle, um, and so it's more susceptible to, uh, to breakage. And there's the practical component where um, after washing the hair, there tends to be, depending on the hairstyle, quite uh, a time-consuming process of getting uh, the style back. So when approaching our treatment recommendations, it's best to think of it as a negotiation. We're trying to 
that recommends something that's going to be effective but fits within the paradigm of that patient's uh, hair care practices. So much better to negotiate it and be sensitive to it than to just be uh, uh, across the board and be very um, strict uh, about your recommendations. So one strategy that, that's been useful for, for my patients is to uh, recommend a once-weekly uh, hair washing regimen with a prescription shampoo, um, using, advising them that they can use their usual conditioner right after, and that can help reduce some of the dryness associated with some of our shampoos. The night before hair washing, uh, one option is to use fluosinolone acetonide in a peanut oil vehicle very highly accepted in this patient population. You leave it overnight or 68 hours and it helps to loosen up the scale right before washing. Very well received uh, by these patients. Um, and in addition to that once weekly treatment, using a once to twice daily application of a potent or ultra potent topical corticosteroid, usually cobetazole or something comparable, in a vehicle that is compatible with that patient's hair care practices. So there, this is something where you want to get the patient involved. You want to give the patient some options, give them a sense of what's the, what are the range of options, and asking them what they think that's going to fit best for their hair. And they actually appreciate that extra step. If you ask them that extra step, they know that you are not only are very caring, but you have a, a good understanding of some of the nuances of their hair care. So it goes a long way. Um, but uh, in general, even though it's hard to make broad generalizations. In general, in this population, lotions, emollient foams, and oil-based vehicles tend to be most well-received, more so than ethanolic uh, vehicles and water-based solutions and, uh, and gels. Uh, but of course, there's going to be exceptions to every rule. But lotion and emollient foam and oil tend to be the most well-received. An alternative is the fixed combination calcipotriene and beta-methasone dipropionate topical suspension, which has actually been studied in uh, non-white um, patient populations. This is a study published a, a number of years ago using this calcipotriene beta-methasone dipropionate uh, topical suspension, known as Taclinex. Uh, this was used on the scalp uh, in Hispanic and black uh, patients in a randomized eight-week double-blinded uh, uh, controlled trial. And not only was it found to be safe, effective, and well-tolerated, uh, but uh, in my clinical experience, the fact that it has castor oil and mineral oil in its vehicle uh, tends to resonate quite well with this population, and, and the, the consistency of the product fits most people's uh, preferences and hair care styles. So a very good option. We also may, given the severity of scalp psoriasis, which tends to be more severe in, uh, in patients of uh, African ancestry, particularly women uh, of African ancestry who have lower hair washing frequency, uh, non-topical treatment options might be considered. So if you're not getting enough mileage out of, out of topical therapy, not, ha not having a high threshold for non-topical therapies, including biologics, eczema laser, traditional oral systemic agents, uh, and newer oral uh, uh, agents like a premolast. You've got to watch out for uh, acetretin, of course, which is, is useful in scalp psoriasis, but would not be an option in women of childbearing potential. 
Very recently, there have been studies uh, using some of the newer agents uh, on scalp psoriasis, including this paper that was published of a premolast uh, for scalp psoriasis, showing, uh, uh, demonstrating safety and efficacy for scalp and nail involvement. And this study, which is not yet published, but I was involved in, we're using secukinumab or Quisentix in scalp psoriasis. So we do have a broad range of options, including some of our newer agents that have come to the market. So back to the original question, I would favor other, would not use a shampoo every single day for the reasons I mentioned, the dryness, the brittleness, and the lack of practicability in this population. Low-potency corticosteroid, generally uh, not uh, uh, effective enough uh, in scalp psoriasis, uh, and so I would use a high-potency or ultra-potent uh, corticosteroid in the appropriate vehicle. Similarly, calcipotrin cream alone, um, not only would the vehicle cream not be that amenable for scalp use, but calcipotrin alone probably not uh, uh, efficacious enough. So I would uh, use a once-weekly washing, fluocinolone acetonide in a peanut oil base, using uh, um, consider uh, Taclinex or calcipotrin betamethasone and topical suspension, and if failure or more severe cases, an oral or injectable agent. So in summary, when it comes to psoriasis and its nuances, uh, first of all, with epidemiology, uh, I think underreporting uh, and uh, underrecognition contributes to a perception that it's uncommon in psoriasis, but I think that concept has been refuted, and we're now starting to see evidence that the prevalence is a lot higher than was previously, previously reported. Uh, less conspicuous erythema, we have to train our eye to be able to detect uh, that violaceous and hyperpigmented hue and not uh, mistaking it for just hyperpigmentation but rather for erythema. The post-inflammatory phenomena uh, contribute to a worse quality of life impact of this as do cultural factors and we have to, we tend to be more likely to have to do a biopsy to distinguish between psoriasis and common mimickers like lichen planus, lupus, sarcoidosis, CTCL. There's a tendency to have more severity at the time of, uh, of uh, diagnosis with increased uh, body surface area of involvement in this population due to a whole host of issues which range from cultural, socioeconomic, and other uh, barriers to getting specialty care. And scalp psoriasis we've talked about. And also recognizing that there may be some cultural aspects to the skin and hair care routine that influence the clinical presentation and ultimately the treatment recommendations. So moving on to another common uh, disorder that we usually don't have much of a problem diagnosing when it presents in the textbook fashion of uh, pruritic, purple, planar, polygonal papules and plaques, so the six Ps uh, with overlying lacy white reticular pattern known as Wickham striae. So when it presents in that nice classic pattern as we've seen in the textbooks, um, pretty easy diagnosis to make. However, uh, Similar to psoriasis, yeah, color differences, other morphologic differences can make the diagnosis a little bit more challenging in some populations. There are also some different variants of psoriasis that we see more common in some non-white, commonly in some non-white racial ethnic groups, including uh, annular and hypertrophic LP being more common in patients of African ancestry. Lichen planus pigmentosus being more common in some groups, including South Asians, Middle Easterns, and African populations. And like with the other inflammatory diseases, we have the long-lasting pigmentary sequelae as an issue. So let's go through some clinical examples. And uh, in, in patients of intermediate pigmentation, light brown skin, you can still make out the violaceous hue here, and the diagnosis 
is not that difficult because of the flat top nature of these papules and the, the slightly purplish or violaceous hue here. However, let me advance the slide, in very richly pigmented skin, such as type 6, the plaques may be grayish and you may, may completely mask the uh, purple color. They may be deeply pigmented, so, so just um, hyperpigmented basically, and cannot really make out the uh, erythema or violaceous hue. The annular variant has been reported to be more common in, in folks of African ancestry, including African Americans. And this would have to be distinguished from other annular lesions, such as secondary syphilis or uh, tinea corporis, uh, sarcoid too, and a number of others. So this is generally a biopsy diagnosis. Hypertrophic LP, also been reported to be more common in patients of African ancestry. And uh, um, again, we see these deeply pigmented, hyperkeratotic, uh, uh, thick plaques uh, on the leg, which are extremely pruritic, and, and th these patients generally uh, report picking and scratching these uh, vigorously, chronically over time. Again, another biopsy diagnosis. We have to distinguish this from pruigo nodularis and, and other uh, disorders, too. Another example, which looks like pruigo nodularis, but is really hypertrophic lichen planus. When the lichen planus resolves, it tends to leave behind uh, very stubborn, deep uh, uh, pigment, uh, hyperpigmentation due to pigmentary incontinence. Since this is an interface dermatitis, there tends to be a lot of uh, pigment drop down from the epidermis down into the dermis. And so patients can have these long-lasting, very uh, disfiguring uh, hyperpigmented patches. Because the pigment is mostly dermal, it's very challenging to treat this. Uh, we can use bleaching agents. We can combine that with chemical peels. We might combine it cautiously with laser, but uh, it's, it's not, not easy to treat. Uh, and debt, no matter what you do, it is going to take many, many months. And so sun protection and tincture of time and counseling is, is still very much part of the management here. Then there's this variant of lichen planus, which I'm seeing more and more over the years, and it's really not fun to see because it's so hard to treat. And this is lichen planus pigmentosis. So you have these patients coming in with, with uh, what looks like it can mimic, have un so in some ways mimic melasma with hyperpigmented patches on the face, but it's different from melasma in that there tends to be a subtle grayish or violaceous hue to it. And uh, a biopsy is generally necessary to make the diagnosis. I will biopsy all of these. This is a patient uh, that I saw yesterday um, post-biopsy, and uh, she reported this disfiguring uh, dispigmentation for uh, over three years. And I did a biopsy of her face and of the chest, and it both, both sites revealed a lichenoid uh, dermatitis. Uh, that uh, is compatible with a lichenoid drug reaction. So uh, reviewing her medication history very carefully, we identified uh, ACE inhibitors and uh, beta blockers that coincided with the onset of this. So uh, one has to uh, be able to recognize um, photo-distributed lichenoid uh, reaction and consider medications that uh, can cause this and not make the mistake of tr thinking it's always oh, just some uh, unusual 
melasma or PIH, so you have to understand that there's an underlying lichenoid uh, dermatitis. These are some of the drugs that have been reported uh, to cause lichenoid drug eruptions, including antimalarials, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, uh, lithium, um, and uh, sulfonylureas. This is an example of diltiazem-induced in, uh, lichenoid dermatitis with pigment alteration. Similar story, this is a patient that had this for years, had seen many other practitioners, was treated as melasma, but there's, this is not melasma. There's something different about it. The, even though the quality of this picture isn't great, the, 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 this brown is not just standard hyperpigmentation. There's something grayish, purplish about it, which is a tip-off that this is an interface dermatitis, like something lichenoid. So it turns out there are numerous reports of diltiazem-induced photodistributed lichenoid uh, eruption with uh, hyperpigmentation. And so going from here to here, this is about uh, 10 months difference. Uh, no treatment was really done. There was no, there were no bleaching agents, no peels, no laser. Um, just uh, stopping, finding out that it was the diltiazem, stopping it, and um, using uh, sun, sunscreen. So let's, uh, uh, let me just show a quick case, which also highlights some of the clinical morphologic differences of uh, lichen planus in uh, African-Americans. This is a 20-year-old African-American woman who presents with a widespread pruritic eruption, which she says uh, started just two months ago. And this is what she looked like. Look at these little follicular-based uh, papules that are slightly scaly. Kind of hard to make out what's going on here. Kind of resembles lichen nitidus in some areas, close up, little follicular-based papules, sort of lichen nitidus-like, but it's all over her trunk and her extremities. Now we're seeing over here some larger, flat-topped, slightly violaceous plaques, so giving us some better clues. We see this linear pattern here, suggesting kebnerization, all right, so we're getting some clues here. Uh, again, a little bit more of that grayish to violaceous hue of these flat-topped Papules, but again, very lichen nitidist like. And now finally, we get something that's more textbook there. That's kind of look, looking violaceous there. And this is uh, more deeply uh, purple to hyperpigmented and looking more like lichen planus. Again, more, there we go. Better clue, more typical of lichen planus. So looking carefully at the morphology of the entire patient and looking for clues. But still, I did a biopsy because there is a differential diagnosis and it was still a little unusual and, and confirmed lichen planus. So in summary, lichen planus, just as in psoriasis, there are variations in the morphology and clinical presentation, in color, hue, uh, and the variants, specific variants of lichen planus, including lichen planus pigmentosis, um, challenges in, in making the diagnosis of of hypertrophic LP and lichenoid drug eruptions, and a biopsy is often necessary to confirm the diagnosis and rule out other diagnoses in the differential. Because of the long-lasting pigmentary sequelae, it's important not to undertreat these patients, and I'm more apt to use systemic agents uh, and treat, treat early and aggressive to minimize the pigmentary sequelae down the road. So with that, thank you. All right, so thanks again for your attention, and let's uh, go through some of the questions you've submitted. Uh, let's start at the top here. How do you present the psychosocial implication of even a small plaque in this population? I feel it is hard to convince insurance when the patient doesn't meet the typical criteria, even when it is significantly decreasing their quality of life. Yeah, 
Amen, brother or sister, whoever said that. <laughs> um, it's uh, very true. Uh, it's, uh, we're faced with that challenge of getting uh, systemic or biologic agents covered uh, when patients may not meet the body surface area uh, criteria. So it's basically a, a case of us serving as advocates for our patients and uh, writing a letter to the medical director, uh, quoting some of the, the literature, uh, supporting the use of these agents can, can go a long way. And often, if you just take that extra step, we're all busy and it's very tough, but when, when, the actual, when we need to go to bat for a patient, we can do this if we get the, uh, if we get the right decision maker uh, on the phone or uh, uh, at least uh, uh, have a letter sent to that person. And so that's what I typically do, but I understand that it's very challenging to do that. Will your presentations be posted? And uh, they're not in the... Yes. I apologize for, their, for these presentations not being in the conference materials yet, but uh, as you've uh, heard earlier, they, they will be made available. Um, how would you treat lichen planus covering the feet? Yes. Uh, especially, uh, um, you tend to find uh, bullus. I didn't say anything about the bullus variant of lichen planus. And that can affect the uh, lower extremity, too, and can impact uh, daily functioning, especially if it involves the feet. Um, how do I treat it? Um, I, I would resort to the same agents. Uh, when it comes to topical therapy, almost invariably I'm using a class 1 or class 2 uh, corticosteroid. Usually clobetazole, possibly fluosininide. Uh, but you really want, you don't want to undertreat. If you're going to use midpotency, it's, it's generally not uh, satisfactory, at least in, uh, in, in my experience. So aggressive topical, uh, class one or class two cort topical corticosteroids. Uh, oral agents for more severe cases. Uh, Short-term use of cyclosporin for very severe cases. It can be very useful. Of course, there are uh, limitations to long-term use with the nephrotoxicity uh, and other side effects. Um, phototherapy, uh, I've had mixed results with, but uh, for widespread uh, LP, uh, that in a patient who's afraid or concerned to use or has a contraindication to using a systemic agent, phototherapy is an option. Uh, the downside, we may be worsening the pigmentation uh, abnormality there, uh, so that's, that's a limitation in darker skin. Um, Short-term corticosteroids for patients that are actively flaring uh, and severely uncomfortable, uh, giving them a sort of three-week uh, tapering dose uh, to get them under control and then transitioning to topical therapy is, is another approach. So in lichen, lichen OOF, lichen, perhaps that means lichenoid reaction due to dental metals, would the rash be only oral uh, or can it lead to other areas affected? Yeah. Um, I think it tends to be most of the reports are oral LP, but uh, it's possible uh, that you could get uh, uh, non-oral involvement, but the majority of cases that are reported are, are uh, oral. Uh, rule out hep C and lichen planus. Yes, I always, uh, invariably, I will check hepatitis C in all my lichen planus patients. Uh, I'll explain to the patient that in the majority of cases, it's not related to anything infectious, including hepatitis, but in a percentage of patients, it is, uh, it can be associated with, uh, with hepatitis C. So to be thorough, we're just going to go check, we're going to go ahead and do this blood test and, and check that out. And they usually accept that and appreciate that you're being thorough. And, and it's nice to have the peace of mind that it's not hep C associated. So I do invariably check. Next question. 
treatment for lichen planus aside from topicals. So again, uh, some of the non-topical options, would, would, and it really depends. You've got to do a risk-benefit uh, uh, analysis on the patient. It really depends on the overall severity and how much this is bothering them and the overall uh, safety profile, their background health and concomitant medications. But in general, cyclosporin is very good for severe and short-term use. I would use three to five milligrams per kilogram, and certainly under one year in the, in, in, uh, in the vast majority of cases. I tend to start on the higher end and then taper down uh, once, once they've uh, uh, achieved some degree of remission. Um, phototherapy I mentioned, short-term corticosteroids, uh, those are my go-to. For hypertrophic LP, uh, in a woman of non, in someone who's not a woman of childbearing potential, uh, then uh, acetretin uh, can be useful. Do you use oral metronidazole to treat LP? No, uh, I've not used uh, oral metronidazole to treat LP. Does anybody here have experience doing so? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that being a useful treatment option, so no, I've, I've not incorporated that. Generalized lichen planus, use of acetretin. Yes, I didn't see that. Um, as I was just saying, the, in the cases that are more uh, hypertrophic, uh, I, th that specific variant, I find it to be uh, quite useful. How would you treat the PIH from LP that develops all over, like the picture? Yeah, uh, it's one of the toughest things out there. So. Um, if it's really covered all over, if it's a generalized involvement, it's just not practical to treat all of it at the same time. So we pick uh, zones, prioritize with the patient. What are we going to work on? Are we going to work on the arms, the forearms, or the chest, or your, your face? Pick one zone at a time. And I will incorporate um, bleaching agents. And with caution, in the right patient, I, I have had some success using low-density, um, low non-fractional uh, laser uh, resurfacing in combination with bleaching agents, but again, you have to have uh, um, you have to understand the potential risk of worsening the hyperpigmentation and be very conservative with that. But uh, it's something that uh, that can be useful for some patients. Also, another laser device is a low-power diode, nineteen twenty-seven fractional laser, uh, combined with, uh, with with topical therapy, uh, can also get to that dermal uh, pigment and uh, resolve that more quickly. So I'd consider some of these approaches, but you've got to consider cost and, and uh, the uh, safety concerns. Do you prefer to dose class 1 steroids in anogenital LP? Well, that would be the exception to the rule uh, where I, I, strong, I strongly recommended class 1 steroids for LP in general, when it comes to anogenital involvement, uh, that would be the one place I, I wouldn't. I would, that, that would be an area where I would stop at mid, I would stop at mid potency for a short period and then use low potency for a little bit longer and use non-corticosteroids such as tacrolimus ointment or protopic or uh, pimecrolimus um, or elidel in those areas. Treatment options for stubborn LP in the mouth, another challenging scenario. I generally use triamcinolone in oral base that they rub into the affected area. Uh, when, it's, when it doesn't respond to just topical therapies, as painful as it sounds and really is, intralesionals do work if the patient can tolerate that. Um, but uh, oral therapy, this is an area where you want, want, need to resort to cyclosporin for a short period of time if in very severe cases.
Are there any other, any other questions? I think we've still got a little bit more, more time before the break. Okay. Thank you. Enjoy the break. <laughs> this has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.